gradually things started changing and the thing that the, the straw that broke the camel's back was actually an event called Fruitgate where um, we used to get fruit deliveries right twice a week and then the parent company decided they were on a cost-cutting measure and you know we had to look at cutting costs across the whole organization and you know somebody said yeah I think we're going to need to look at the fruit and I said look this is going to be a disaster if you take away the fruit you know it's only going to save like a few grand and it's really going to go down badly but you know my voice wasn't strong enough in the grand scale of the organization and basically they took the fruit away and genuinely it was a disaster like folk just saw it as a signal that nobody cares anymore you know it probably caused more uproar than you know changes to bonus and things like that which also happened as a result of being part of a bigger company you know but yeah Fruitgate was it caused a lot of people to go you know So welcome back to How I Built This, the only podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish tech companies and how they came to be. As always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Associates, um, technology recruitment experts. Today on the show, I'm delighted to be speaking to Paul Reid, founder and CEO of Trickle, a real-time employee engagement, well-being and recognition platform. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, Liam. Thank you very much for having me on. Total pleasure. Thanks for coming. I took that little snippet about uh, Trickle directly from your LinkedIn because it was a nice sentence. Every, every so often on the show, I've got to try and work out, like, how do you explain what a company does in, like, one sentence without sounding like an idiot? Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that was there. It made it a lot easier. It's quite um, funny. It's a little elevator pitch that you have to rewrite every month, you know? <laughs> yeah, we've got investors trying to get you to you're trying to part money with them and you've got to tell yeah. them why uh, yeah, no, it's, exactly. a, it's a good one just before we jump into trickle then um you're a, a kind of software engineer techie by trade but also kind of successful entrepreneur so just for people listening if they don't know your background what, how, would, how would you sum it up sum it up um okay so <laughs> i am in my 40s now mm-hmm. i'm not going to give away my exact age so my career spans 25 years um that, that probably gives it away um, yeah <laughs> so i started as a, a software engineer i was at napier university in edinburgh um did a software engineering degree um when i was in my final year there was a, a lecturer there who came and he used to work for nasa uh, and he said um oh i know this cool startup and uh, they're based out of the guy's house and they're looking for developers <laughs> So I was like, right, okay, cool. Um, I'll go and see them. So I kind of had my interview in the the founder's house amongst Fisher Price Toys, you know, genuinely like one night and uh, ended up working for that company. Um, just a startup, I was like employee number four. Really good experience. You know, I got I, I was software engineering, got to do management, um, ended up being kind of more of a customer-facing person than a, a raw techie. And that kind of set the tone for my career, really. Um, so I worked for them for about four or five years, started my own business, um, Sigma 7 in 2000, um, that was acquired in 2015, and then that took me on to, to trickle after that. So yeah, techie for half my career, and now they don't let me anywhere near tech. Do you still want to get involved at any point, or is that ship sailed? Like, are you much happier, like you said, that kind of customer-facing bit? Do you know what? It's interesting, right? Because when you kind of hang up your coding gloves, if you like, and I tell you what, the development guys will be ripping me if they ever even hear me saying that language. But, you know, when you stop coding, you kind of think, oh... I've lost that ability to be creative, right? Because that's one of the things that I used to like about coding is you get a problem and you kind of solve it and then the customer says, well, can it do this instead of that? And it's very kind of pliable, right? So when you stop coding, you kind of think, oh, I'm going to miss that. But what you do is you take pleasure in seeing other people do that, you know, and you still come up with the discussions with the customer and maybe some of the designs and the art of the possible. So I'm still heavily involved in that. And I think the advantage I've got 
um, is that I do deeply understand that world. So whilst I don't code, you know, I can I can definitely still get involved in technical conversations um, to the point where I'm dangerous. So yeah, um, I, I I don't miss it because I'm involved in it at a certain level, you know. I'm, I mean, I'm sure the the devs actually love the fact that you came from that background. Because I've heard of like CEOs who genuinely couldn't like boot up a machine by themselves, and they're like they're chucking opinions on like software development. So at least you've got like at least you've got the chops to talk to them about it, which is good. Well, I guess I'm one of the guys that can't boot up my machine, but actually can <laughs> talk to them about software development. So yeah, maybe. Hey, a nice happy medium. Uh, you also probably underplayed your uh, your Sigma Seven as well. Sigma Seven's like a it's a really like good success story of Edinburgh technology in the last kind of couple of well, last few years now it's 2015 since it's been bought but um, yeah. I mean that, that was a pretty big company and a pretty big acquisition if I remember it properly yeah we were we were really proud of that for sure um, we started in 2000 we had four people the basic idea at the time was to help organizations manage their data because like data wasn't really a, such a thing in those days you know 2000 and my background was in uh, mapping and, and what they kind of technically call spatial technology you know being able to analyze things in the context of their position in the world uh, and and again that was quite kind of cutting edge it was well before google maps and all that kind of stuff so yeah, we started with a year's consultancy for Scottish Power, um, and that gave us a kind of good foundation, you know, to actually start the company. And in the background, I'd been building a product, and essentially we, we evolved the company to be a product company as opposed to a consultancy company over a period of years. Um, I think at the time of acquisition in 2015, we had about maybe 50 staff. Um, we were the market leader in the UK in what we did, which was great. We used to beat massive companies with literally thousands of times more staff um, to contracts. And we took real pride in that, you know, because we were just a, a small group of people who loved what we did and were really kind of passionate about helping customers, you know. So, yeah, it was a brilliant journey. The main thing about it was the people, really. You know, we, we had a fantastic culture and that was what really allowed us to outperform others, you know, was everybody really felt bought into it, felt like they could influence it. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a brilliant place to work, a really great place to work, you know, and, and that was a big part of it as well. If it hadn't been such a great place to work, we would have struggled to recruit, especially in the kind of 2012, 13 period, you know, that was like two or three years before we were acquired and well, four years before we were acquired. And, you know, at that time, Skyscanner and, you know, Microsoft and loads of big companies in Edinburgh were competing for tech talent. And, you know, we were just known as a good place to work. So we managed to, to, to win that and get really good people working with us, you know. I loved that 15-year part of my career. Well, I say 15 years. Once we were acquired, I stayed for another year and a half um, as the MD. You know, we were acquired by uh, Capita, who had 70,000 employees at the time. So we were taking, like, 50 people into a, a team of 70,000. Now, obviously, you get integrated into a structure, so you don't kind of get exposed to the full 70,000. But, yeah, that was a lesson in itself and kind of led to the led to the trickle story, really, you know. Nice. I mean, I, we probably won't go into it too much because we don't we don't need to for the sake of the show. But was that maybe was that one of the harder things when it did get acquired? Kind of seeing your kind of baby getting swallowed up by seventy thousand person capital. Like I know you, you you knew you signed up for it. Like you you sold it. But like was that a weird kind of couple of months at the start where you were like, oh shit, like <laughs> that, that's it's it. Not- yeah, it's 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 a funny journey, Liam, because like you said, you go into it with your eyes open, right? So, you know, we'd had a few offers for the company in the years gone before that. And just because we were being successful and we'd kind of looked at them and for one reason or another, we never went ahead. And then this one came in and, you know, at that stage, our costs running the company were considerable, you know, each month. And we were, we were really successful. It was good. But, you know, in those days, it was before 
for us anyway, it was before software as a service. So we were selling our product on a, a perpetual license. So, you know, good good license fees. You know, they'd be 250000 for a small contract, maybe up to a couple of million for a big one. But, you know, if you sell if you sell a contract at a million, you get good headlines. But then underneath the hood, you know that it only covers you for four months of costs, you know. So it gets to the point where you're like, well, for us to be really successful, we either need to get significant investment and we never had any investment at all in Sigma 7 that was a really nice part of the story you know it was purely organic so investment wasn't something we really thought about too heavily and you know I'd hit my 40th birthday I'd just had my first kid and I thought yeah it's time for this to become part of a bigger beast because they'll be able to make our customers happy by you know investing in the product and really helping us take it kind of internationally you know which which was really good so went in it with eyes opened um, it was the right decision, you know. All the staff had secure jobs, etc. There was no redundancies or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, you have to be aware that you know people are going to start saying, "I think we should be doing this with the product," and you might not necessarily agree with that, right? So yeah, it was it was good. The next, the first eighteen months of that, and the eighteen months that I stayed were were difficult for many many reasons. But there was also lots of positives about it, you know. And the company ended up. I left, you know, eighteen months later. And the company had about 80 staff by that stage. You know, we had about 50 when we sold it. So they did continue to invest in it, you know. Nice. Um, and you mentioned kind of part of that story links in with um, Trickle. So it was kind of like January 2018, Trickle's kind of like born as a company. But you mentioned just before the show that there's a there was a bit of a background how you got to that. So how did they go from like deciding you were leaving Sigma as the MD to being a CEO of Trickle essentially? Yeah, so it, I think all throughout my career, to be honest, there was probably three, three kind of key decisions or three key learnings that came out of um, my journey through the first job I had through founding and kind of growing Sigma Seven, and then through that the third part where it became quite difficult. And I think the lessons can be summed up as being, you know, the first job I had, you know, working in the startup in somebody's house grew very fast. You know, I was employee number four and within a year we had maybe 20 or so employees. And what was really interesting there, the lesson I learned was that the founders there were really, really clever people and really focused on growing the company. And in the background, you know, the people that were coming in, like myself, had kind of various niggles that were building up over time. Um, Simple things sometimes like being based in their house, you've not got ergonomic furniture. You're sitting at a kitchen table and in a, in a kitchen uh, a bench essentially and you're kind of thinking oh wait a minute I'm getting a sore back you know is that because of this so there was various things that built up and when you scale that up to 20-25 people and everyone's got niggles like that folk tend to get quite frustrated unless they get a chance to hear them and, and get listened to so I think everyone got a bit pissed off and you know I was a couple of years in and I was thinking right I'm, I'm probably going to move on from this uh, but before I left, I thought, this is pretty daft, right? Everyone knows that there's so many problems here that probably are easily fixed or relatively easy fixed. So what I did is I went around and I said to people, right, give me your top two or three issues. And I wrote it into a Word document, right? This was in the days of floppy disks. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I didn't put anyone's name on it, but I, I put in a Word document, I put on a floppy disk. And I walked down to the managing director's office once she'd left for the day. We were in an office by this stage, right? So it was a couple of years later and we'd moved to an office and it was that was definitely a lot better. But we still had all these issues. Left the floppy disk on our desk with a post-it note saying it was from me, you know, because I was leaving anyway. Um, and then the next day I get a call, you know, Paul, um, do you want to go out and talk about this uh, company issues doc file that's appeared on my desk? So the, the founders and one of the directors invited me out for lunch and we went to the Cannyman's pub oh, in Edinburgh. Yeah. No, it's quite uh, quite an interesting pub. Sometimes we just say you're not getting in for for no other reason apart from you know they didn't want you in that day. So anyway, we had a lunch there, and it was really an eye opener for me because I thought they were going to 
you know, give me a lot of hassle, to be honest, for saying, hey, this is a document with 25 moans in it. But they actually said, thanks very much for letting us see the extent of these problems, you know. And, you know, they said, look, there's 25 things here, but, you know, probably the top five or top 10, we can we can probably work with you to fix. How about you go back, help us communicate that to the team, and, you know, you can stick around if it looks good. So I ended up staying for another couple of years, you know. Um, because it was became a really good place to work, and and I became a manager there, you know, and had a, a team both here and in the states, which was really good. So I think the lesson there was listen to your people, because the success of the company is absolutely fundamental to listen to your people on and showing that you're doing something about it. And then armed with that knowledge, when I started my own business in 2000, that was a really key part of building that culture, right? We knew that you, you had to listen to people, and as we grew, you know, we came across the same niggles, right? Just as the way that every company that grows does but I struck it lucky really because I came across an article it was around about 2007 so we were about seven years in and we were starting to kind of scale up the team and we had about 15 people 20 people by that stage and there was an article on uh, criminology that I just happened to read on a, an email newsletter and it was called broken windows and uh, it was a study done in America about derelict buildings right and it said that if a building was in a neighborhood that was derelict right and they secured it you know they had the perimeter fence and it was you know warning this is patrolled um the building would generally remain in good condition but if they deliberately broke one window took down a couple of the security signs and just left it for a couple of days it would practically be demolished when they went back a week later and that study became quite a famous study because it it showed that if you can you know, fix things when they're small, then it, it really helps the environment become a better environment for people to be in. So I kind of thought, this is just like our problems, right, as we're growing up. So we created a, a process that we called Broken Windows within Sigma 7, and we used to meet every couple of months, whiteboard, I would stand there, you know, 20 people in the room, right guys, shout out what's on your mind. And everyone would just shout out, it was really, you know, get things off their chest. A lot of the time it would be, folk would get quite, you know, oh, should I be saying this? Or, you know, is this controversial? But I think after a few months of that, they saw that really we were keen to listen to everything. So we'd scribble everything up. Half an hour later, we'd say, right, okay, everyone vote. And then you would get your top five things. And we would go away and say, right, okay, Ross, you can work on that. That makes sense for you. I'll work on this one. Um, you know, Joanne, you work on that one. And we'd come back two months later and we'd say, right, blank whiteboard again. What have we done since then? Um, most of the time we'd kind of made some kind of improvements and then we'd start again, just doing it again. You know, what are the things that are on our mind? And that was absolutely fundamental in um, making sure that that business was really performing to its best ability, you know? Um, Can you think of like one thing that like came out of one of those meetings? Like, even if it was just like a trivial, funny one, but like just if anyone's listening, I, I love that idea. And I'm just trying to picture like what, what might have came out of that, like that you, that you could fix quickly, for example, or maybe not, maybe a longer term one. Yeah, yeah. So it would be a mixture of things. So if you think about um, the way that we dealt with our customers, you know, it would be things like we don't get enough detail about what they want to do because we were building bespoke product a lot of the time. So it's like, you know, the, there's not enough information in the documents we get. Um, it would be things like uh, the office. There's not enough quiet space to work um, if you really want to concentrate, you know, because it was an open plan office. Um, so we brought in some phone booths and things like that, you know, as a result of that. Uh, sometimes it was just like um, there's not enough bins. You know, as we bring on more people, right, you bring on, like, you've got 10 people, right, and you bring on 10 people and you buy them a laptop, but there's still only 10 bins. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, you never think about things like that. So, it, it, honestly, it covered anything. Um, but the point was, a lot of them were simple, you know. Yeah, now we've had the bin wars where we grew loads and we still had the 10 bins and it was like, every morning someone would be like, who's next to my bin? And then, like, <laughs> we started doing, like, 
just quite organically, but the guy started just buying like fruit for the kitchen. So if you come in in the morning, you, you can get yourself an apple, banana, whatever, like with your coffee, just as like a nice wee thing. And yeah. uh, one of the new staff came up to me one day, he was like, you could maybe ask the, the guys if they could get some cereal bars as well. And I was just like, no. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's the thing. I mean, I think the thing about broken windows that was really good, right, was that you just said that there, right? Some of the things you can't do, right? Yeah. So it's not about listening to everything and then saying, hey, we're going to fix all this. But the thing that gets people engaged and feeling that they really have a chance to participate is that they're involved in the discussion where you say, great, we're going to do this, or no, we can't do that because... And that's a really, really important part of, I feel, growing successful businesses. You know, there's um, the famous Google study um, that was about, you know, what makes the best performing teams, you know, and they, they kind of coined this phrase called psychological safety. And what, they, what that was, was that the common factor across all their best performing teams was that they felt that they could speak up without a fear of negative consequences. And, and that's fundamental to to having a, a, a thriving workplace, you know, and it's, it's kind of the the crux behind trickle, to be honest. And it's funny that you mentioned fruit because this is completely unrehearsed and you would not know this from any <laughs> conversation before, but actually one of the biggest downfalls, which takes me to the third lesson about that led to trickle was Sigma 7 was really successful, brilliant culture. We got acquired. Suddenly we've got, you know, whole new reporting structures and um, people coming to me saying, what do I do about this? You know, where do I go to get a new laptop? And a lot of the time, I didn't know the answer to that. You know, we went from being this family-run company where everybody knew who to speak to to, wow, I don't even know who to go to here. And things start changing over time. So, you know, on a Friday, for example, at the end of each month, um, we would have pizza and beer and we would talk about things that we'd done that month. And mm, beer was a bit of a challenge, right? When you're part of a bigger corporate, it was like, oh, how does the health and safety work with this? So gradually things started changing. And the thing that the, the straw that broke the camel's back was actually an event called Fruitgate, where um, exactly like you said, we used to get fruit deliveries right to twice a week, um, and then the parent company—I've um, already said their name, but anyway, I'm not going to say their name in the context of this part—decided um, they were on a cost-cutting measure, uh, and you know we had to look at cutting costs across the whole organisation, and you know somebody said, "Yeah, I think we're going to need to look at the fruit," and I said, "Look." this is going to be a disaster if you take away the fruit. You know, it's only going to save like a few grand and it's really going to go down badly. Um, but, you know, my voice wasn't strong enough in the grand scale of the organization and basically they took the fruit away and genuinely it was a disaster. Like folk just saw it as a signal that nobody cares anymore. You know, it probably caused more uproar than, you know, changes to bonus and things like that, which ha- also happened as a result of being part of a bigger company, you know. Um, but yeah, Fruitgate was... It caused a lot of people to go, you know, and and really, if I look back, I've spoken a lot really about the, that journey, but there's three lessons, right? Number one is from the first part of my journey, listen to people because they've got great ideas about what needs to improve. The second is that if you can do that, you, you can really have a company that will outperform organizations that are many times bigger. And the third thing is that as soon as you take away that ability to be, well, we coined it as three things. You need to be inclusive, you need to be agile, and you need to be transparent. And the minute you take those three things away, then your cultural phone is backside really quickly. And that's what happened after our acquisition. And, you know, people started, we lost about 30% of staff probably in about a 12-month period. And prior to that acquisition, I think we'd lost two people voluntarily in maybe five years before it. So, you know, it was it was a massive lesson in how people are absolutely crucial to the success of your organization. And that's where Trickle came from. That's what we did. We said, look, we've understood over the last, you know, 10 years 
what make what can make businesses successful, let's turn that into a software product. So broken windows is trickle, right? So we've got a thing in trickle called a trickle and it's basically a suggestion or an issue. And it's just like a broken window, right? Someone says, hey, I think that we need more bins. Uh, and the thing about it is that it, that then evolves and it gets a score. So, you know, if that's just a little problem, it maybe won't make it your top five. And the idea is that you focus on the top five things. Um, and every trickle has a thread where people can contribute to the discussion, um, but also it has a lifespan. So, you know, someone's going to own it. Somebody's done something about it. And then finally they resolve it or they say, hey, we're not going to do anything about this because. So it goes from an idea to something that reached a conclusion and everyone who's interested in that can follow it along the way. Um, and that's really where the, the, the basic concept of the platform came from, you know. No, I really like that. And I think... I don't know if I've just been spoiled and you've been on both sides of the fence, so you'll probably appreciate it a bit more, but like having worked for a company where the founders are still super involved and it's the only real kind of company I've worked for for a long time. Um, the, some of those things are just like given in terms of like, yeah, you're right about the fruit and all that kind of stuff. But like when we're speaking to candidates in the job that I do, sometimes we'll be trying to like, say we're trying to help trickle get a software dev and they've got another offer from JP Morgan. Like one of the big things I always try and tell them about, and obviously money is hard, right? If you go for 20 grand more and you've got two kids at home, good luck saying no to that. But there's a huge thing for me, like if you're going to go join the big companies, like somebody that's owned by Kappa or a big bank, you're probably not going to get listened to. Like, yeah. well, like overall, you might get listened to in your team and you might have a good, you might have a good manager, but like to actually affect the business, it's going to be really, really difficult. Absolutely. And you know what? That was probably the best advice I got. I, t I talked at the start about the chap from NASA, right, who got me that interview. Um, you know, he was one of the guys that taught me coding. And he, and he said, look, the, the good thing about this job, because I was kind of looking at programs, you know, in those days, the big corporate programs, you know, this was 1995, right? So the big corporate programs were quite attractive. You know, you would come out of university and you would go and work for, you know, a bank or someone like that and, you know, do coding for them. And, you know, you I guess you felt you had a bit of security and, you know, there was an attraction of working for a big company. But um, this chap said to me, Barry Keepins, his name was, he said, you know, if you go here, right, you're going to have the, a real chance to be involved and you're going to have a real chance to learn from that. And it was actually pretty scary, right? I won't, I won't lie. You know, I was like working with some really, really proper, intelligent, experienced coders, um, you know, who went on to work for Microsoft and Google. And, you know, the founder of that company works for Google DeepMind now. And, you know, it was, in a way, it was quite intimidating. But, oh, did I learn a lot, you know, just through being thrown into the deep end? So, yeah, that, I, I would always say to someone, you know, go to the company for the culture and the chance to be included as opposed to, you know, the, the other benefits. It might seem like they're kind of short-term, better and more attractive um, things to have, but long-term, you know, you might actually have a better opportunity from really making a name for yourself in a, in a place where you can influence it more, you know? Yeah, and you've got, I mean, I jokingly said if you get 20 grand more, it's hard to say no, but like 20 grand irrelevant if Monday to Friday nine till half five you're absolutely miserable like obviously if you've got costs and all that but like it, yeah, there, there is a weighing up point one of the things um, we work with a startup actually um, and the, to, in the early days of hiring their CEO always used to send an email if somebody was on the fence saying listen like you're an amazing potential candidate come join us if it doesn't work out you can go join the big company anyway like you'll, absolutely. Still, you'll still get to do that so why not take a wee risk and join this five-person company. And if we do what we say we're going to do, you'll definitely join the big company in your career later on because they'll be biting your hand off. And it was yeah. kind of, it's flipping on its head a little bit. Like, you're going to end up in the same destination, probably. 
Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I get asked quite a lot now that I've got grey hair and a bald patch at the back <laughs> is that, you know, people say, you know, oh, I'm thinking about this. This could just be like mates and you know, I live in North Berwick and maybe somebody in the coffee shop saying, oh, I'm thinking about starting a business. You know, what do you think? And I always, always say to people, well, why wouldn't you, right? Because what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, what do you do now? Well, I work for so-and-so. Well, you know, with the CV that you've got, right, if you start a business and it doesn't go the way you want, then you can usually always go back to what you were doing, you know, and you'll probably enjoy it a hell of a lot more, you know. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's, it's different because you can say that as a successful businessman, but like when I'm doing the job that I do and it's like you're a software developer and you work at X massive company and a small company like Trickle says we're really interested, you're kind of like, well, you're a software developer. Like you get a job tomorrow, almost in every city in the world just now because they're so in demand same for data engineers data scientists like the, the risk is only there if you if you don't really want to keep changing jobs but like if you're happy to try it out then you can almost do anything and absolutely people, and it's not the same as it was when even when i first started doing this job like people don't really go oh he's got he's had a couple of jobs in the last few years and it's like it doesn't really happen anymore which is good um agreed what was it like for you being back at startup I'm the person in charge. There's nobody else kicking, or a couple of people kicking about, but like, what are we going to do? Like, what, what was that? Was, were you buzzing? Was that like the whole point of you doing it? Yeah, totally. Like, totally buzzing to get involved. I sh- what I should say, actually, is I had a couple of things that I did in between um, that I should definitely mention. So, one of them was that um, I was asked to be the interim CEO appointed where um, Leah went to have our, our baby. And, you know, that was just a pure joy, to be honest. So, I did that for a, a three month spell. And what that allowed me to do was they had a team of maybe about 15 at that time and just to go in and try a different world. You know, I'd had my own business. I'd never really worked on somebody else's startup. And, and Leo was like, you know, come in and meet the guys. And what a team they had. It was just fantastic. You know, and they, they really, really welcomed me because that must have been really difficult for them, you know, having someone come in just for three or four months. Uh, and, it, you know, they were a SaaS company. I'd come from a kind of perpetual software kind of more traditional software company so there was a lot of learnings there um, and it was a real joy and I'd, I'd already had the idea for trickle I'd already sounded out the team so I did that for three or four months and then when Leah came back I said look I'm going to I'm going to move on and, and do this and it was perfect anyway because Leah was back you know yeah so I, I got that kind of whetted my appetite and then when we created trickle it was a couple of guys that um had worked with me in sigma seven you know like for example ross our cto he was my first employee um going back to 2000 in fact i interviewed ross on um, 9-11 day and i remember when I, at the end of the interview he'd been doing a technical test and i said to him by the way um this is pretty terrible but and while you've been sitting in the room doing this test basically the twin towers has been bombed and it's on the verge of collapse and he just kind of looked at me and he walked out and I was like, wow, he was pretty calm about that. And then when I did the second interview with him, he said, I really thought you were just giving me some kind of test to see how I'd respond to that. <laughs> so I always remember that. I always remember that day um, when I first met Ross, because he, you know, he and I work together now, you know, 25 years later. Um, no, not 25, however, 20 years later. Um, so yeah, Ross, Ross came from Sigma 7 with me, another chap, Joe. Um, and another guy, Aridas, who doesn't work with us just now, but um, that was the basis of the, the Trickle team. So it was exciting because I knew that we worked well together and we had this idea on what we could do, taking our experience in companies and trying to help bigger companies replicate the culture of a smaller organization, you know, where people are more included. So super exciting. Um, also, 
a bit of, a bit of pressure, I guess, because folk always say to you, oh, this is going to be so easy, right? You've had a successful company, so you're just going to have another successful company. And it's like, it's, it's never like that, right? You know, you're doing something completely, well, in my case, doing something completely different, you know. Um, there couldn't be probably more contrast between what we did in Sigma 7 and what we do now in Trickle, you know. It was, there was no link between them at all. Um, so it was reinventing my career. It was, you know, in a, an area where, okay, I had a lot of experience from the journey, but, you know, to actually come against competitors who've maybe got, you know, behavioral scientists and people like that, that they started the company with, you know, we didn't have that. And, you know, now I, I get asked to talk about engagement and I, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. But that was just purely through learning that and, and having to change my career around. You know, I went, I went from a guy who was considered an expert in spatial databases and how to measure things on maps <laughs> to somebody that uh, gets asked about how to engage people, how to engage people well within bigger organizations, you know, so it's quite a, t- quite a turnaround. But yeah, it's, a, it's been a massive pleasure because I realized that the thing that I've really enjoyed most in my career is the people side of it, right? You know, I, I really loved coding and that was definitely a good part of it. But the thing that gets me excited is, you know, working with people and seeing people develop their careers and, you know, tackle issues. And that's what excites me about Trickle, right? Is Trickle gives people a chance to listen to the things that they could improve. You know, where's the low-hanging fruit? What are the top five things we could do right now that would make this team or this organization better? Um, and, and that's a real a real pleasure to do. I was about to say, I didn't want to jump in, but you, th- you did it, uh, you've always done it the wrong way around. So everyone always talks about how when you see an entrepreneur who's successful, what you don't see is all the failures before it. But like you're coming straight from having one company done really well and then everyone just expects you to do well on this one. So yeah, you're right about like, that must be a weird kind of like, a weird mindset for you. It's like, you, you need to make it work almost. Yeah, and it's like it's it's got its challenges, right? So, and one example is raising investment, right? So we've raised investment in Trickle, we've raised um, seed funds, you know, and I'd never raised investment before, you know. And people looked at me and went, "But you've been in business, you've had a business for like fifteen years that you exited, you know." And I was like, "Well, yeah, we never had investment, you know." So you have to. There's lots of things that you have to learn, right? And I guess the beauty of that is that you know you've because I'd been in the Scottish startup scene for basically twenty years at that point, you know, I, I knew a lot of folk, so. You know, that 2017 was a, a time of going out and drinking a lot of coffee or peppermint tea in my case and uh, meeting a lot of people and, you know, just saying, look, I've got this concept. What do you think of it? And, yeah, I might need your help or would you be interested in trying it when we build it, you know? So, nice. you know, the, the, before we founded the company, there was a good six months of just going about and, and trying to get help, you know? Nice. And we'll, well, actually, I'm going to come on to fund in a sec, but... Uh... Even during COVID, you guys have had some, well, in fact, especially during COVID, you guys have had some pretty amazing growth um, with kind of real ramping up in headcount. And you've mentioned people a lot, so it's probably worth asking, is there anything you've learned from, I suppose, your time when you were coding and then managing a team to running your own business to even going in at a point and then running your own business again? Is there anything that really stands you in good stead from like a hiring point of view? Like, is there anything that you always do no matter who you hire like do you just trust your gut like is there anything that's if, if a founder said to you like how on earth am I building my team like what, what would you say to them yeah I think gut is um, is really really important in it and there was a there was a really good book I read actually um, it was called I think it's called Smart and Gets Things Done if I recall it correctly it was by a guy called Joel Spolsky he was um a famous developer at Microsoft, and he, he was one of the kind of first well-known technical bloggers. And if you've heard of a product called Trello, I think yeah. he, he was 
one of the founders of Trello, right? So he wrote this book called Smart and Gets Things Done. And it basically said that's what you look for in a person, right? When you're recruiting them, it's like they're smart, right? And they're keen to progress, right? They've got an attitude where they want to learn and they want to get things done. So we, we used that in Sigma 7 uh, and it was really crucial to the way we recruited. And there was also another thing in that book that said, when you speak to people after the interview, if it's not a yes, then it's a no. If you've got people going, mm, I don't know, let's think about it and we'll speak about it tomorrow, that's not the best thing to do. If it doesn't feel like a yes right there and then, then it shouldn't be a yes. And that's something that, you know, we've talked about a lot in various companies that have been involved and appointed being one of them. You know, I'm on the board of a few others and um, I think that's really important is that gut feel, you know, and that, yeah, it feels it feels really good. Let's go for it. Or if you're not sure, it's, it's maybe not right, you know. One of my colleagues, uh, Murray, is going to love that you said that because every time, uh, I don't know how you guys did it, but every time we've done an interview, basically straight away, anyone that was involved in the interview will jump into our room or now on the Zoom and uh, just like what you said, yes or no, basically. And uh, he's always the one that's absolutely yes or absolutely no. There's been a few in the last few years where we've said, like, mm, maybe, and more often than not, they don't work out. Um, yeah. So I think there's definitely something to that. Um, yeah, and the, the context is that recruitment is really difficult, right? I mean, it's there's so many factors to take into consideration. You know, will, will they like working for you? Are they the right fit? You know, there's so many things. Um, but, yeah, that, those are the... The, the kind of basic instincts I used to I used to go with and, and encourage others to go with as well, you know. Yeah, no, I think it's great advice. Um, and you mentioned uh, investment, and it is, it's actually interesting that you hadn't had to do it before because it's, it's a big it's a big part of a lot of the startups we work with anyway that people go for investment rounds. And you mentioned twenty nineteen, you guys got I think one million seed funding, but also you've done a bit of like a personal like angel investment in this tech companies as well. So I, I thought it'd be worth picking your brains on that and like. What was that process like? You know, if you're a startup trying to get money, is is there a kind of way that you'd recommend they do it in terms of just thinking about the business and like what they actually need rather than just jumping two feet into an investor? Yeah, I think so. The first thing is, you know, it's about the story, right? That's the the best thing you need to get right is like, what am I going to tell this person in a couple of minutes that's going to get them excited about what we're doing? Because, you know, I'd been used to telling the Sigma 7 story, but mainly from a sales perspective, whereas telling the story from an investment perspective is is very different. So that was a lesson. Um, And I think it's just, you know, again, got feel. So I got introduced to a number of people, you know, um, so Techstart, who who were one of our investors, you know, I had a cup, coffee with Mark Hogarth before they'd actually created the fund. It was about three or four months. And what was funny about that was I'd actually secured the investment we needed. So we just went for, you know, quarter of a million initially, right, to get things off the ground. And we had angel investors that had already committed to that. And Mark said, yeah, I'm interested in this, but, you know, we're not going to be around for a few months. So, you know, go ahead if you need to go ahead. But if you're still here and you want to talk, let's do it. So we actually went back to our angel investors and said, we want to get Techstart involved. So could you give us a little bit less so that we can get them involved? And uh, one of the guys, um, Pierce, who was one of our major investors, he said, do you know what, Paul? He said, it's the first time in my life where somebody's said to me, can you give me less money? Um, so, But that was really good because it gave us a bit of diversity, right? Instead of just having you know, five or six angels. We had the angels who were really keen to still be involved and we had Techstart who bring a different 
uh, a different perspective on things, you know. So so that was really good. Um, but again, that just came through my network and people saying, I think it was actually Colin Hewitt at Float who said, um, yeah, I met these guys at Techstart and you should speak to them, you know. They, they might be interested in what you do. So that was a lesson there. Um, so yeah, we've done, you're right, we've raised just under one and a half million over the last kind of 18, 20 months, um, which was kind of like deemed as our seed round. We did it in two or three different phases. But um, I guess the other part of the advice there is, you know, try and prove as much as you can, um, as early as you can, because if you go out and ask for a load of money at the start, you know, you've got to have a pretty strong story because fundamentally it's about, you know, what can you actually prove, you know, and the more you can prove in terms of not just people are going to buy it, but people have bought it, you know, people are going to renew, people are renewing, you know, there's a big difference between predicting that somebody's going to do something and then having evidence that they actually will. And obviously the more evidence you get, then the, the better price you'll get and essentially the more equity you'll keep as part of that so um that's always a good thing to do well so, i mean i'm not saying it's the only way to do it but that's certainly the way I've, I've i've tried to do that you know yeah and then you asked me about my own angel investment so yeah i'm involved in a a number of a handful of different companies in scotland and that's been a real pleasure as well you know um Ertz, who are now called day shape you know they were one of the first that um, I did an angel investment in um, Float as well, you know, and these companies are doing really well. I was involved in Coach Logic um, and Cali um, over at um, Malsey as well. You know, he was he he got me involved just at a, at a small scale. So yeah, that was that was brilliant because you know my although I'd worked in the Scottish startup scene for fifteen years, my network wasn't here my, because my company was a UK company and also we had an office in. Um, New York that we just started about a year or so before we got acquired so you know my job was to go around the UK and then eventually kind of northeast of the states and meet customers there you know I did, we didn't really do a lot of business from being in Edinburgh um, because we worked with large utility companies so what was also good about doing the angel investments aside from getting involved with some brilliant people was it was really great for establishing a network you know because I was going out and meeting companies who were looking for investment and just you know having great conversations about what they were doing and sometimes getting involved you know um, and I did a few non-exec roles and and things like that as part of that as well so that's been a real pleasure you know and it's it's just such a privilege to to be involved in companies as they go through a growth phase, you know, I, I, I never ever pretend that um, I'm going to be able to give them any magic, you know, but one thing I can do is say what worked and what didn't work and, you know, if they can take that and apply it in the context to their particular problems, then brilliant, you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant and it's one of the reasons I think the Scotland tech scene does really well is just people, I like a lot of the names you've already mentioned on the show, but people like you as well, just being involved and in, in promoting it. You guys have been in the news Pretty recently, I think it was the last couple of weeks since we came. Yeah, last Tuesday. Yeah, I just seen I just seen your picture loads in the newspaper on like. <laughs> oh, poor you. Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. It was all about the how was your day app. So uh, I think NHS Scotland rolled it out or are trialing and a couple of universities as well. So forgive my ignorance. The app seems quite simple, but I imagine that's the point. Yeah, it's totally the point. So it's actually part of our platform. The reason they called it a new app is for um, a lot of the NHS people. It is essentially a new app to them. But what it actually is, is a new tool within our existing platform. So I've talked earlier about Trickle, right? It's about suggestions, it's about issues. And, you know, people contribute to quite some depth if they want to about how they think things could evolve. The beauty of How Was Your Day is that it's at the surface level. So fundamentally, it asks just 
every day it says, how was your day? Good or bad, right? Happy face, sad face. And just even knowing that is very, very powerful. If you think about, you know, NHS Scotland and the COVID pandemic at the moment, and that's some of the funding for the collaboration we did actually came from the Chief Scientist Office through a COVID grant to um, University of Aberdeen and University of St Andrews. So they kind of led the project and asked us to get involved. Um, and it was NHS Lothian and NHS Tayside were the other parts of that group. So it was a real joy. And what they did is they um, interviewed um, 94 frontline medical staff, but in great detail. So two hour long interviews, they recorded them all. They went back and they said, right, there's five things we need to do following on from these interviews with frontline staff. And some of it was environmental things, you know, to do with the space you work in. But one of the things was that um, GPs in particular said, look, we, we don't really get a lot of kind of credit for what we do um, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of chaos going on and, you know, we've got a very, very difficult job and people just kind of expect us to get on with it. And what they said is we want to know that people are listening because we've got things that we can contribute to how we can make things better, but we appreciate it's really difficult to understand and listen to that at scale. So the idea of how was your day was that, okay, how do you listen to thousands of people? That's really difficult to do. If you can have an app that says good day, bad day, simple as that, then right away you can start to establish where the priority areas are, where teams are doing better than others or teams are, are finding it's more difficult than others right let's focus on those and then if you can drill down the next level so once you've answered that question it basically says what has contributed to your good day or what has contributed to your bad day and this is where the behavioral science teams at the university of aberdeen and St andrews came in they kind of studied the, the core themes and we came up with just some really simple icons so you know you can say oh i've got a great sense of appreciation i've got a great sense of belonging great support from my teammates um, you know, we got um, some really beautiful feedback from a patient. You know, these are there in the positives. And there's some well-being things as well, like um, I ate healthily and I was hydrated. And then if it was a bad day, then you might say things like, oh, you know, I didn't really feel like I got support from the management or, you know, um, I didn't get a chance to rehydrate. Um, so, for example, with PPE, that's a known challenge. You know, you don't get a chance to drink as much as you would normally. Um, so it's just about simplicity, you know, good day, bad day tap a couple of icons and then what the organization gets in real time every day is a chart that goes up or down and then the top five things you know so so as a really simple example nhs lothian and we only found out this out today so nhs lothian before christmas found that one of the top issues for their doctors in training was dehydration okay as is not a big surprise but that was one of the things they said they put in some interventions, communicated some new advice and guidance, and then today they told us that that's no longer in the top five negatives, but it's actually now in the top three positives. Nice. Which is a, a massive turnaround, you know. And they've not got a massive amount of people using this yet, right, because they're just rolling it out. But you don't need a massive amount to get that important data, you know. Um, and that's the thing. It's given them real live kind of finger on the pulse information that they can make changes based on and that's what we feel really proud about right, so you can imagine and we won't labor this at all so don't have much time but you can imagine that trying to get a sweeping change in nhs around how they deliver something like tips on rehydration could take months by the time they get feedback from everyone they collate all they do a survey with hr if you're just tapping a button then it's like you said fingertip stuff which is again the whole point that's it and you know our platform you know the bit the bit underneath how was your day provides that other detail right so they can get the surface level stuff from how was your day find out that dehydration is a challenge and then they can actually create a trickle that says hey we're focused on this if anyone's got any tips on how they're doing it well in other departments or things that are working well for you to keep you hydrated please put them here and then they can gather that all up and then 
boom, they put that guidance out as a, as a shout about, which is another part of our platform. And then people can read that and go, right, brilliant. That's all the best practice, you know. So they've gone from surface level issue, gone down and really understood the depth and the tips and the collaborative approach to how we can make it better. And then finally, here's the best practice guidance on what you should do about it all within the platform, you know. Nice. No, I love that. Um, and then lastly, to finish on a, a really easy question to ask you, what does 2021 look like now that we're almost through January uh, for, <laughs> for, for Trickle? Is it is it just more of the same with the product and kind of rolling it out to more and more people or is there anything else in the works? Yeah, is, is 2021 not nearly over? <laughs> I mean, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so what, what we did last year is we started the year with four people and we ended the year with 16. So, we we deliberately scaled up instead of like you know furlough and things like that that wasn't really an option for us because we saw the increased demand so we started building the teams that we know that we need to be able to take on this additional business you know so we've kind of built ahead if you like um so 2021 is very much about turning up the gas on that you know we've got a sales team now we've got a customer well-being team that are responsible for onboarding and, and making sure that people are successful you know we've got a marketing team and it's now about turning up the volume and turning some of the potential that we've got into actual sales you know because um you know every startup gets tracked on monthly recurring revenue you know and that's what we need to show an increase in now is to take that potential and turn it into statistics so that we can draw graphs you know those graphs you've probably seen a few of them yeah no we we do them all the time so you can sit in a board meeting and tell everybody about it well uh yeah get nodding heads Um, exactly it sounds good and like i said i mean the growth's been amazing and, and it's probably even more so given that we've just went through what we've went through like it would be easy just for you guys to have said, well, let's just stall out a wee bit and like see how this pans out as opposed to, yeah, the hiding 12 folk. Yeah, and, you know, that was, you know, a lot of people questioned that at the time. And, you know, we, we hope it's right and time will tell, right? But, you know, when you're in a position, we're in a busy market and, you know, people like the product, you know, we see some really lovely success stories from it, some that we're not allowed to share because obviously we don't see the data. Our customers will share success stories with us, but unfortunately we can't turn them into case studies because it is the NHS or whatever it might be, you know, and some of the things are things that they, they, they obviously can't share for obvious reasons. But, you know, it is, um, it's, it's, it's been so far the right thing to do. And what we need to do is hope that, you know, okay, some, some things are slowing down because of the latest lockdown and people are unable to, you know, turn up to meetings and things like that. But, you know, the vaccine's on the way, things will hopefully start being better in the next few months. And our bet is that that'll help us do business quicker than we could before, you know. No, so I think we'll find out soon enough. No, Ask I, me in a year. It's a, it's, a good, it's a great decision. And also, again, we're definitely not going to talk more about this because we're going to end up uh, way over time. But uh, people working from home probably love the app or will love the app because they don't have the same like interaction as they normally do. So like having little escalation points about their home setup, for example, yeah, and that's the thing, right? So the icons that we've got and how was your day, they can be, it's almost like an icon pack. So, you know, you can say if you're working in an emergency scenario, then you need a pack that addresses things like, um, you know, trauma response and things around that theme. Whereas if you're an office um, who's working from home, then the trauma pack isn't going to be relevant to you. You know, you probably want the suitable desk and chairs and good lighting and, you know, good good air in my, in my house and things like that, you know. So we're starting to look at the different packs that you need for the different scenarios and the different working environments. But yeah, you're right. And you say people will love the, the app. They'll, they'll love it if people put it in place and 
um, the the organisation listens and does something as a result. Yeah. Um, if that doesn't happen, then there's pretty much no point in it, right? Because all you do is gather a load of information about what could be made better, and then people get even more frustrated when it doesn't happen. So you've got to truly, you've got to be a believer, right? You've got to be a believer that there's business, that your business can be improved, and that you really do want to improve that your business on the basis of the expertise and the energy of your people, because they're the ones that are on the front line and know what needs to, what could be better, right? And if you truly want to do that, then our product is a very very good tool for that nice um, well yeah no, I'm welcome to get you back on next year and see, see or in a year's time and see how it's all going but no thank you so much for joining really do appreciate it no absolutely it's a pleasure and uh, thank you very much for having me <laughs>